This is Small Talk with 101 ESPN's Michelle Smallman. Hey, what's up? Welcome into episode 93 of Small Talk. I'm your host, Michelle Smallman. And if you listen to this podcast on the reg, you know that Sarudi and I do not take things too seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously. We don't take this podcast seriously. We don't take the topics of this podcast seriously. We generally try to keep it light and we strive to have conversations that we feel like friends are having amongst themselves. But there's really no conversation that we could have this week other than a conversation about George Floyd, about the protests and recent events in our country and about racism in America. Because those are the conversations that friends are having and those are the conversations that friends need to continue to have. And so many times in the past, I think white people shied away from talking about race and racism because they didn't want to say anything controversial or they didn't want to talk politics or be accused of performative activism. They were afraid they might say the wrong thing. And while I don't know the perfect thing to say, Steve doesn't know the perfect thing to say, I do know that we have to say something. And I do know that silence is not an option. I do know that not getting involved is not an option. And Steve and I were having these conversations off pod with our friend Marv, and we wanted to take it to the air to hear his perspective as a black man in America and just talk openly about racism and how to take actionable steps towards progress. So Sarudi is here as always, and we're joined by our friend Marvin Prince. Steve and I worked with Marv at ESPN Radio on the ESPN app um, for many years. Marv now works with the Dan Patrick Show. He is a very talented guy. He's worked in sports media for a long time. He does a whole bunch of different jobs. He has run the board. He's been a production assistant. He's done production. He's worked the camera. I mean, he's really done it all. Marv, it's great to chat with you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for opening up this important conversation with us. Oh, yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Prince Marv, what's up, man? Not much, Rudy. Living the dream. You know, Michelle's right. I mean, it, it is weird because, like, oh, cool, we're going to have our black friend Marv on to talk about this stuff. And I understand why people would be like, you know, oh, it's convenient or whatever. But I, I do genuinely believe that I have questions. I don't have the answers, right? I don't go through these experiences. I don't know the things that you're dealing with. And for me to sit here and try to act like I do or act like I have solutions, I just feel like that would be something that, that wouldn't be real and that wouldn't be who I am. And I feel like I would be doing a disservice to the people and our listeners. And so, Marv, I'm really pumped to have you today. And before we get into like, what we could do to fix things and what the future looks like and just, you know, maybe hoping to get into some positivity, I just want to ask you, as a black man in America, seeing sort of the events of the past week, as Michelle said, the murder of George Floyd and then all the subsequent protests and things that have gone down since then, what has it been like for you in this past week, Mark? Yeah, it's crazy because it's been frustrating and encouraging all at the same time. It's been frustrating from the standpoint of another unarmed black man has been killed by the hands of the police, but it's been encouraging from the standpoint of we have so many white people that have joined the Black Lives Matter movement, if you want to, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, and they're really, you know, they've been on board with us, you know, through the protests and through the actions on social media, and I see, you know, people donate to different funds regarding this this matter, so it's been crazy it's been it's been emotional but it's also been encouraging and i hope that uh we can continue having these types of conversations 
It is encouraging. Even look at this conversation we're having now. Marv, Steve and I have known you for years. We talk all the time. You and I talk every week. I know about your family. I know about so many aspects of your life, but this is a subject we've never broached. So even if it's that first small step for a lot of people, it's acknowledging the systemic racism in this country, educating themselves on it, condemning it, and then having constructive dialogue about it. And I wish we would have talked about racism and how to affect change sooner. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's also like, how do you start the conversation out of the blue? But also, I think a lot of times, if you don't see it happen right in front of you, or it may not affect you directly, you know, you're really not, not saying concerned, but it's not at the top of your head regarding talking to someone. But all of us have been there before. Like, you're not worried about cancer until someone you love has cancer. So that's how I kind of compare it to in that sense of I just don't want it to be like white guilt. As a black person, I just want white people to have empathy and compassion for us, you know, as black people right now. And I think it's it's starting and so many conversations have been had over the past week. And like I said before, I'm just really encouraged. But I don't want you to feel bad that we haven't spoken about this before now. Better late than never. You know, I'm glad we're, we're talking about it now. Me too. And, you know, we can move forward. Yeah, and Mark, one of the things that I think about in this is, like, you're right. It's not on the forefront of my mind. Like, as a white person, I know it's there, but because we don't experience it day in and day out, it's hard to have the same investment as if these atrocities or things are happening to you. And that's why it's great to talk to people who, you know, may have sort of firsthand experiences or have more experience than I do, because I'm certainly not going to know. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Marv, was because I feel like this has been thrown out there, and I'm just genuinely curious about it overall, is this notion that race relations, I guess, or racism in this country, this is as bad as it's been since, and people throw out another day, like, oh, as bad as it's been since the Civil War, as bad as it's been since Jim Crow, as bad as it's been since the 60s, since the 80s. I don't know if that's true. I genuinely don't. I sort of lean towards, I do think people are sort of coming around. I think more people are empathetic towards some of the things that black people are saying. Hey, like we have, we are being oppressed. There is systematic racism in this country. I think more people are aware of that. But I want to ask you, do you feel like throughout your life, do you feel like racism has gotten worse? Or are we just more aware of things that are going on right now? Uh, Will Smith has a great quote. I don't think racism has gotten worse. It's just being recorded. So I think the camera phone has brought so many things to light that black people have been saying for hundreds of years, basically. And it's almost like when NWA came out with the song F the Police and, you know, people were outraged. But then when the Rodney King beatings happened, they were like, oh, that's what they were talking about. So I think it's seeing it to believe it, which it's just sad. Like we're not saying we're being abused just for the sake of saying we're being abused and brutalized. So I'm not sure really if it's gotten any better or any worse, but it's just being recorded so people can see it with their own eyes. Right, but with a lot of issues, you unfortunately have to see it to believe it. I mean, how many times have we heard about domestic violence and rationalize or victim shame victims of domestic violence in the past? Then we see the Ray Rice video. We see it with our own eyes. There's no escaping it. There is no rationalizing it. Same thing with George Floyd. We see the George Floyd video, and it is as transparent as can be. He was murdered by a police officer while other police officers stood by and allowed it to happen. And you get hit with these waves of emotions 
They come over you as you watch that video and you're horrified. You're devastated. You're heartbroken. And then you're enraged to watch another human being die that way, murdered by people who are paid to protect us, to protect him as he begs for his life and he calls out for his mother. It's un- it's unbearable. And once you see it, it never leaves you. And it's an issue that black people have been screaming at us as white people, as society to listen to. That message is suddenly branded in your brain. And I think George Floyd specifically, the circumstances surrounding his death really forced a lot of white people to examine white privilege to where they don't respond with, well, I've worked hard for everything in my life, too. I don't have privilege. But realize this is about how the world views you based on your skin color and how the world treats you based on your skin color. George Floyd was arrested after police accused him of buying cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. I feel pretty confident in saying that if Saruti or I used counterfeit money to buy something, we definitely wouldn't be thrown on the ground and pinned beneath officers and there would be no knees on our neck. The cops might not even be involved. The store and or police probably wouldn't assume our intent wasn't to defraud them and they would assume it was a mistake. They would probably have a conversation with us saying, oh, shoot, did you know this was a counterfeit $20 bill? They would probably assume that we had been swindled and somebody had given it to us. And when you open up those conversations about privilege and about the way black people are viewed not only by the cops, but how black people view the cops, you quickly realize that discussions about police are constant in black families and that if you grow up black, you've been given guidance on how to deal with the police to avoid the unthinkable happening. And Marv, I want to know, do you remember when your family first talked to you about the relationship between the black community and the police and what to do if you did have an encounter with the police? So... I got to talk about interacting with the police when I started driving. But it was like when an officer stops you, do not put your hands in your pockets. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. When you reach for your license, keep one hand on the steering wheel and tell them what you're going to do before you do it. So probably around like yeah, maybe like 14 or 15, I was taught that. And I've only had one really bad it was humiliating. I had one bad experience with the police, and that's when I was a student at UConn. Marv, do you feel comfortable sharing that experience with us? Yeah. So I was going to school at UConn, and it was it was me and three of my friends, and four young black guys. And mind you, this is like 2006, so long white tees, oversized <laughs> jeans. I was literally dressed like them franchise boys. <laughs> yup, yeah, in your white tees. In my yes, legit. In my white tee. And <laughs> so we go to the convenience store. This is like a Saturday night. And we go to the convenience store, and there's a cop in the parking lot. Now, mind you, I know he's there, but I pay him no mind. I'm not worried or anything. And so we get our stuff, and then we come out. And we go out. You know, I get in my car, and we all get in the car, and then we all leave. And then he gets behind us. And still, I'm so naive because... Up until that point, I really, I hadn't had any bad experiences with the police. And so I take a left and the lights come on. And still, I'm like, oh, I don't know why he's pulling this over. This is, this is ridiculous. And he asks us where we're going. And he's just asking me basically stupid questions like, 
do I go to school here? And so I give him my college ID. He asked me if the college ID is fake, and I couldn't help myself. I said, why would I have a fake college ID? And then he pulls me out of, now he doesn't pull me, but he tells me to get out of the car. And we're there for like, it seemed like three hours, but it was probably 40 minutes. He's rewording the same questions, like where were you guys going? Like in a Saturday night at 11, we're going to a party. Whose party? This, that, and the third. And you can see cars going by, and I am just so humiliated. And then he makes him some BS about we ran a stop sign. And I was like, wait, we took a left at a stoplight. What stop sign? And then another cop car came, and then another cop. So there were three cop cars for the four of us that were just going to a party, and we were all students. And to make a long story less long, he let us go on our way, you know, with no ticket or no anything, because there was no need to pull us over. And that was so embarrassing and so humiliating, because up until that point, I was, to be honest, I was pretty naive because that hadn't happened to me before and i came from a town in connecticut east hartford connecticut Rudy knows it and it's pretty diverse yeah (laughs) so and it's pretty diverse and my interactions with the cops were pretty minimal so i was shocked and hurt and embarrassed and humiliated and I was like oh, okay now I see when people are like when you're black in a neighborhood or in let's keep it a buck in an all-white area this could happen and Marv you know that's why you know I mean you guys kind of know me I try to be very factually driven if somebody has a take or if somebody has an opinion or presents something to me I want to know okay what are the facts that are backing this truth and one of the things that people like to sort of throw out there when it comes to police brutality and specifically unarmed people being murdered by the police is, you know, the statistics of, you know, what is it, nine unarmed black men that have been murdered by the police compared to 18 white men. But then it's exactly stories like yours, Mark, that you just told that are why you really can't look at those statistics and use that as your only thing, because how do you categorize what statistic is there for what happened to you, Mark? Like there isn't one, right? There's nothing that would show up in a report of how many people were wrongfully stopped and basically had your rights violated in, in a way because you were just trying to go to a party when you were in college. And that's where, I'm as open as I want to be about looking at every side, those personal stories, Mark, but one that you just told, are ones that we cannot ignore because they're things that cannot be put into a statistic to be used to make whatever argument you want. And this is why we have to listen to black people when they tell us these things are happening to them. So I'm glad you shared that story, Mar, because I think that's a perfect example of how people who continue to want to act like this isn't a thing. It's perfect examples like that that no one else would know because other than probably you and your friends, right, Mar? Like, how, why, why would anyone else know what happened to you that night? Because it wasn't probably documented, right? You didn't get arrested or anything, but it was clearly something was wrong. They did something wrong with you. And probably only you and your friends and those cops know exactly what went down that night. Yeah, and it was just one of those things where you're dumbfounded like why did you pull us over and also this is where i have an issue with the facts over feelings crowd where they try to put up the data of this is how many white people were killed this is how many black people were killed first of all we're 12 percent of the population and say there's a hundred more white guys killed than black guys the percentages that's what you got to look at more so than the actual number of people it's the percentage and also, I'm sure you guys have seen this on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. They'll say this many white people were killed by the police. 
my question is, how come you're not angry? I'm always dumbfounded by them just saying that just to say it. Like, okay, well, this white guy got killed by the police. How come you're not angry? And how come it's the first time everyone's hearing about this? You only did it for the gotcha moment. You didn't do it because you're like, this is happening to us too. To me, it's just a bunch of gotcha moments. And that's what kind of irritates me about the All Lives Matter group and people that are always trying to basically be contrarians regarding Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And that's also, that's irritating. It is. And dismissive also. Totally. It is dismissive. And we opened the show here on 101 ESPN on Monday and actually Tuesday, too, talking about this here in St. Louis. And you're absolutely right. I cracked the mic and I said, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, there has to be justice for the murder of George Floyd. We live in a world saturated with racism. The system has got to be examined, broken down and rebuilt. Black people have been telling us their stories for too long. We haven't listened hard enough. And it's going to take white people listening and standing with the black community and amplifying black voices and black experiences and fighting this fight with them to make necessary changes. Black lives matter. And before the mic even stops reverberating, the messages start coming in. But what about the good cops? But all lives matter. But what about the looters? But this and but that. And it was really eye-opening for me to see that so many people are trying to immediately deflect from the message. And I keep responding to them with, ask yourself why it is so hard for you to just receive and say, that black lives matter. And I don't know why so many people feel the need to immediately try to counter this message. Yeah, it's incredibly annoying and frustrating. We're not saying only black lives matter. We're just saying, where's the compassion for us? And I always go back to the whole China and NBA fiasco that happened late last year, even to this day. Okay, so LeBron posts something about George Floyd, and then you'll just get a bunch of people. Well, you didn't say that about China. You didn't do this about China. Well, they didn't say that about China either, and they don't care about China. It's just a gotcha moment, and it's anything to deflect off of what's going on and what's happening to black people. That's all it is. We live in a gotcha society. Like, see, you're not talking about that. Okay, well, those guys weren't ever talking about what was going on in China. So that was my thing. And also, to be 100% honest, if you want to be angry at LeBron about not speaking up about something, it's about not saying anything about what happened to Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old that was killed in Cleveland. But they're not going to say anything about that. They're going to say, what about China? And that's what just infuriates me to no end. It's always but this, but that. So that's what can be frustrating during this during this time. Mark, I'm just interested in the dynamic of the relationship between cops and especially when, you know, they'll go into majority black communities and the way that they deal with things. What do you think is the main reason for the distrust of the police in black communities? Does it go beyond racism? Because, I mean, I've heard people say, you know, okay, they're going into rougher areas, right, and they're trying to protect themselves. And it's not just necessarily racism. They have to deal with things on a day-to-day basis. But what is it like when a cop, and cops are around in these predominantly black areas, what is that like? Are you just constantly on edge? Are people constantly on edge? What is that feeling like? Because it's something that Michelle and I really don't have any experience with. You know, what's crazy is where I grew up, I grew up at a place called Hocken Projects, and I lived there until I was about 10. So my experiences 
with the cops were very different than my older cousin who was 16 and my older cousin who was 18. They had very different experiences. And I think growing up, I was like, oh, you know, the cops are nice to me, but they also don't see a nine-year-old boy as a threat. And I think a lot of times people can be on edge. I think the distrust is because so many people have been stopped for no reason and arrested for, you know, something minor. And they've been roughed up. Now, mind you, it didn't happen to me, but I heard horror stories about kids in my neighborhood getting roughed up. And when I mean kids, I mean the older teenagers. And it definitely became, like, I would say hi to the cop that, you know, was patrolling. And my cousin would be like, man, fuck him. (laughs) So I was like, oh, all right. But I was nine. I didn't know what was going on. But my cousins and their friends were dealing with the cops and their experience with, with the cops in that neighborhood were much different than mine. And even the adults, like when you saw a group of black kids, it would be, okay, break it up. Like we're just standing here. And not every kid was selling drugs or not every kid had a gun. And you would hear that. Okay, let me explain it like this. So almost like the cop that murdered George Floyd. Okay, but that's not an indictment on all cops. And the same thing with what used to happen in my neighborhood. Okay, that kid got busted for guns and weed, but not all of us have it. So why are you harassing my cousin and his friends? And my aunts and my grandmother, they were always a little you know, weary or a little like they would give the cops a side eye, like don't mess with them because they're not doing anything. And obviously being a cop is a tough job, but also policing with a level of compassion and also just living by the motto, innocent until proven guilty. In my neighborhood, and I'm sure neighborhoods much rougher than mine, I do not want to act like I was in fear for my life growing up where I grew up. In much rougher neighborhoods, I'm sure it was much tougher. But nonetheless, it was still, you were still on edge, especially if you were a young black man. And you can kind of see the shift that goes from being like the cute kid that the cop says hi to, to what are you doing out or where are you going? Where are you headed? So it's a, I don't know if it's complicated, but it's a, it's a really weird relationship between the cops and black people. See, I think it's okay to say it's complicated, and it's important to say that there's nuance involved. Just like cops are saying, hey, not all cops are bad cops, not all cops are racist. And it's just like that story you told, Marv. Black people are saying, hey, we're not all criminals. We're not all threats. These generalizations are problematic because it's such a complicated issue. And I think we need to keep digging deeper and asking why. Keep peeling back the layers of the onion to get to the origin of things. And, you know, I've been trying to educate myself for the past few years. And one of the best things I've ever watched, period, was 13th, the documentary that really shined a light on the mass incarceration of black people in America and why it's been allowed to happen and how the system is rigged against black people in a lot of ways. And I mean, just for example, take a drug, cocaine or crack, same drug, different forms. Crack was used and sold in predominantly lower income areas, but crack was criminalized far more severely than cocaine. So while a lot of people using cocaine, it was seen as a, quote, party drug, etc., 
black people using crack could go away to prison for a long time. The punishment was disproportionate based on your life circumstances, even though the crime was similar. And just from that, I mean, think of the ripple effects of just that example of systemic racism. You have black fathers going to jail, impacting the black family structure, and that further breeds distrust with the cops and the justice system as a whole. And the cycle repeats itself. And I mean, that's just one example, but it's not palatable to think about the history of institutionalized racism in our country and how deep this goes, because the magnitude of it is overwhelming. But until we peel back the layers and go back into history and acknowledge and rebuild these damaging laws and systems in place that oppress and target certain factions of our society, we're never going to be able to come to a solution. No, absolutely. So say like when someone goes to jail, okay, case in point, because he's a public figure. Most people who know him maybe know his story. So Meek Mill, he got arrested at 19. He was 30, still on probation and had to call a parole officer whenever he would leave the state of Pennsylvania. And the system and a part of, you know, systematic racism is, all right, you go to jail, but you're still in the system. And whether you're on probation or parole, then that leads to you not being able to vote or get another job. So then you got to go out and do what you have to do to support yourself or support your family when you're coming home because most of them have kids that they've been away from. And then you get caught and then you go back into the system. And at this never-ending cycle of young black men in prison and also economically. Okay, so say like a poor black kid gets arrested, but he hasn't been convicted. He just got arrested. And they say, all right, your date in court is blank. And the bail is set at whatever, $50,000. Like you're in the hood. You don't know anybody with $50,000 or you don't know anybody with credit. So now without being convicted, you are stuck in jail for a month, maybe longer for a crime that you haven't been convicted of. And that's something that happens. Like, I don't know if you guys guys saw uh, the Khalif Browder story. That's exactly what happened. He sat in jail for years and was so messed up, you know, and And a lot of times it's also this notion of let's not treat them like boys when they're 14, 15. And a lot of these kids get tried as adults and now you're in jail with grown men. And what does that do to you when you get out of jail? I had a friend who was in jail from 16 to 26. And he's like, it's not even the little things. It's like, okay, I've never been on a date. It's those things and... You know, he's doing great now, but it's about trying to break the cycle. And it starts with education. You come from terrible schools and single parent home. The father's not around. You feel like you're you're getting pulled maybe to the streets. The cops are messing with you. And so there's so many different struggles that you're going through. And so I was in a pretty decent situation. So I can't tell somebody who's in that type of situation that I just said to say, oh, just do well in school. He's like, I'm trying to keep the lights on and you're worried about school. My family has to eat. Like you can't eat no books. And so that's something that really plagues young black men into this system. Not saying that you don't have a choice, but if you don't have any other options, what can you do? And that's something that it's really tough because 
you know, I've seen some really uh, tough situations for some guys where they had to be the man of their house at an early age because, like you said, dad was in jail or dad just wasn't in the picture. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and hopefully this can be the start of not just a black conversation, but conversation between all of us, and, you know, we're doing that now. Marv, it's a great point because a lot of us don't really look at the ripple effects, as Phil said, of what you just described, of how that impacts a young man, a young black man who is, a lot of times not able to be a child, not able to grow up and have a normal childhood, right? And so, I mean, I think outside of the legal changes, which I think we all think are necessary, and some of them have, I mean, obviously, you know, in many states, decriminalization of marijuana, things like that, where not these ridiculous sentences for such small amounts. Or that, yeah. Obviously, those, every little thing helps. But And I'm asking you an impossible question, but I feel like I need to ask it, because if we had a true answer, then we probably wouldn't be on this podcast. We would be solving problems in this country. But what are the main things that you think need to change? Like, are there easy things that can change overnight that either the government, police officers, we as white people, what things can change quickly that could at least have some effect? Because I think a lot of people want to know how they can help. So I think a great way is we have to talk to our local officials. Hurting someone's pockets is the best way to to get to someone. Like, say, if you have been accused or been convicted of police brutality and that family wants to sue, they should be able to go into that police officer's pension and the police union pension and get money from them. Because so many times it's the city or the state that pays the victim's families, and that's coming out of our pockets. So if you go into their pockets, the police union isn't going to try to protect them because they're trying to keep their pension. And those police officers would think twice before they started brutalizing these people. And I know it's not a it's not an easy fix, but I think that's a way that can affect change regarding this situation, George Floyd. And it's a shame because I shouldn't have to go to the senator or the congressman to say, hey, this is a way for the cops not to kill black people. But if that's what we got to do, then that's what we got to do to really create some change because you know, you dig into somebody's pocket, that'll create something that can change things. The idea that this is some political issue, too, is like, oh, this easy. It's just like, oh, go vote for the people that you want to vote in. That, to me, just isn't the full solution. Obviously, you should go out and vote and put people who you trust and who you believe in into public offices that are going to do the best for you. But the people that are saying that is the ultimate solution, that's just not it. I'm sorry, it just isn't. Because, I mean, if you look at it, you've got people on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, who have been basically caught up in this entire thing and have and have certainly have blamed uh, to go around for all of it. And, you know, one thing I'll say, too, Marv, is that, you know, I have a good friend who's a cop, and I've talked through a lot of these things with him, and one of the things that he's been pretty adamant on is when bad cops do things, it's not like they are, like, supportive, like, all these guys are like, oh, you know, we're in this together. But the good cops want the bad cops to be eradicated as well and outed so that they stop having this bad name for themselves that is, you know, around right now. So I think, you know, the more these things come to light and the more things are able to be shown in the public eye, it's actually in some ways a good thing for cops and good cops because they're like, yes, let's get these bad apples out of here so we can start having solutions so we can start feeling safer on the job as well. So, of course, everything in today's day and age, and especially with, you know, social media, specifically like Facebook and Twitter, everyone has to be in Camp A or Camp B, and there's absolutely no middle ground. And you can get caught up in this thing where you have to pick one side or the other, and I just think this solution for us going forward, for people going forward, for America going forward, isn't going to come from one side or the other. It's going to come from people meeting in the middle 
and finding some common ground on this. And Amar, why do you think it has taken, I guess, so long for, as Martin Luther King said, like the white moderates are the ones that he is sometimes was sometimes most disappointed. Why do you think it has taken so long for people to get on board with that? I think there's a couple of factors. The fact that there's been a couple of shootings with um, Breonna Taylor and uh, now George Floyd, and also the quarantine. People aren't at work. A lot of people are still at home. There's a level of frustration that is just boiled over. And also, unlike, say, a Trayvon or Michael Brown, where it was a he said, he said, you saw this on video and you saw a man basically being choked out to death for almost nine minutes. So I think all of that came to a head where everyone just got tired of seeing this. People had just had enough. I can't really put, I really can't pinpoint it on one thing, but I think those factors have really contributed to what we're seeing now. And also the looting thing is is tricky for me only because I hate to see somebody's business get ruined. But on the other hand, unfortunately, America only understands violence. And to the people that were doing it out of anger and not for those idiots that are taking advantage of a really serious situation for their own benefit, some of our favorite holidays or some of the holidays that we celebrate or hold near and dear or whatever, Thanksgiving, Columbus Day, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, those holidays happen through blood. And I think that's something that a lot of people are starting to realize. And I think the people that, you know, not even the looters, the people that were just burning stuff were just like, maybe this would get your attention. It's just been incredibly uh, crazy, but hopefully we can uh, just get to a place where people just aren't being brutalized and aren't being murdered. It's just a lot that just happened all at once, and it was the perfect storm. But hopefully through George Floyd's death, a lot of good can come out of this. And we can continue with this and just be consistent. I'm not saying we got to have this discussion every day, but... Stay on it. Yeah, just we just got to stay on it. And that goes for black people, white, whoever's. If I see you out there marching and protesting, that's great. But I just don't want this just to be the flavor of the month and you're taking pictures for the gram with your fist up. That's cool. I respect you for going out there, but it's got to be something behind that. I'll wrap it up with this one, Marv. We talked a little bit about why this feels different, why the reaction to George Floyd's murder has been different. And I think what you just said really resonated with me. It feels like all the lights in the stadium went on in the middle of the night. For some reason, this cracked our consciousness as a society And I think it's because we're all forced to be at home. This isn't the first time this has happened or the first time we've seen a video of police brutality. But this time there's no he said, he said. It's a video of an undisputed murder. And there's nothing going on to distract us. There's no sports. We can't go to the movies. We don't have other outlets to occupy our minds. We can't avoid this pain. And I think that's a good thing. People seem to, specifically white people, seem to want to educate ourselves. And there's so many important avenues in this, whether it's signing petitions or donating money or supporting black businesses or peacefully protesting. But I think having these conversations and continuing to educate and inform ourselves about what is happening to black people in America 
is crucial because right now the fire is raging and we need to keep learning and putting logs on this fire until we can extinguish racism. And it's going to take a long time, but I think it can be done because this situation has opened a lot of people's eyes and people are willing to listen and learn in a manner that they weren't before. And I think a lot of white people previously thought if their intent wasn't to be racist, that they were okay or They didn't intentionally learn about racism or immerse themselves in education about racism because then they would have to examine their own behaviors and their role in the structure of oppression. But I think we need to be intentional with how we approach this. I mean, even me, if I look back to myself in college 10 plus years ago, I mean, I went to the University of Illinois and Chief Alinawick was our mascot. I'm from Native American Indian heritage. And when the chief was removed, I didn't really understand it. So many people at Illinois were so sad. And I just remember thinking, we respect the chief so much. When he comes into the stadium, we honor him. We keep these traditions alive, etc. And then I had some really enlightening conversations with people. I educated myself. And now I really understand why the chief was harmful and problematic. And a lot of my friends are the same way. But instead of canceling us because we didn't understand People had these conversations with us. People had this dialogue with us and we listened and we said, "Okay, let's read up on this and gain this knowledge and grow. And I think a lot of people don't know what they don't know. And the more we seek out knowledge about these injustices happening in America towards people of color, the more it's in our consciousness, the more we're aware of it and the more we're going to continue to take steps towards a better future. Yeah, absolutely. You hit it right on the head. I think you guys are doing a great thing educating yourselves. And I always feel like I did the same when it came to women's rights. And I use this example, like a black person getting murdered and a woman being sexually assaulted. There's always a, like a qualifier. How was the woman dressed? Was she suggestive? Or was the black man resisting arrest? Like, no, neither of those things should have happened, period. And this privilege is that, like, me and Saruti, like, we all work in sports, but Saruti and myself haven't had to deal with the stuff that you've had to deal with, being a woman, especially in this industry. So all of us, we have privileges that sometimes you don't even realize. Like, you're not trying to be mean-spirited or act like you're not concerned. Sometimes you just don't know. But I'm glad all of us are at a place where... No matter what your privilege is, you're trying to attempt to do something to better somebody else's life and make it better for the next generation. I want my son to not to go through an experience like I went through at UConn. If we can have these types of dialogues, you know, that'd be great. And continuing to help out in any way we can and look up different websites and different groups and different programs to really keep this thing going. Absolutely. And you brought up women's issues and that's the power structure in my life that had silenced voices, not only mine, but all the women around me. And when Me Too happened, I will never forget we were on the road for the fall football tour and that was when the Harvey Weinstein article first dropped and I stayed up all night reading it and reading all of the tweets and all the information because I could not believe that someone like him who is, was notoriously a sexual abuser and a sexual harasser would be outed like that and when I went down to breakfast the next morning I'll never forget Will Kane and Rosillo talked to me individually and they were like hey we read this stuff is this happening to you? 
Tell us what we can do better. Do you need to talk to us about these things? And that meant a lot to me that they would want to have those uncomfortable conversations and look at themselves and maybe their role as men and how to advocate for women. So with that being said, like I said, I'll never forget that. And so when it comes to race, me as a white person with privilege, I certainly want to have this conversation with you and hear your life experience. And thank you, Marv, for joining Steve and I and being open to having this dialogue. And thank you for sharing so much. And I just encourage people to listen what you had to say and hopefully take steps to educate themselves so that we can help make this a better place. Thank you guys so much because all black people want is just to be treated fairly and just have everybody united. That's it. So thank you, Smalls, and thank you, Saruti. Appreciate it. You're the man, Marv. Appreciate it. Like Steve said, it's not Marv's responsibility to start this conversation with us. It's not his responsibility to educate us on racism in America. But nevertheless, Steve and I really appreciate him coming on having this open dialogue with us and sharing his experiences. Hopefully you learned something from it and hopefully this is a constructive first step, but it is certainly one step of many. Thank you for listening. Steve and I will be back in action again soon, but until then, stay safe. Thanks for listening to Small Talk. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the Podcast One app.